This is the Fertility Hour, where couples learn how to improve their fertility naturally. Join Charlene Lincoln as she interviews leading experts in the fields of natural fertility, holistic medicine, and preconception care. Fertility Hour is where you'll find evidence-based strategies, tips, and resources to help you when trying to conceive. And now, here's Charlene Lincoln. Welcome back to another episode of the Fertility Hour, and um, I have a very special guest. Um, I know her from her own podcast, Fertility Friday, which I'm sure if you've been cruising around and checking out fertility information, you have heard of Miss Lisa, a fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner who has been charting her own menstrual cycles using the fertility awareness method for the past 15 years. Wow. She is passionate about helping women to develop body literacy by understanding their natural cycles. After struggling with excessively heavy and painful periods for years, Lisa discovered the connection between health and fertility firsthand. Her personal experience of overcoming a Hashimoto's diagnosis and uterine fibroids has influenced her practice immensely. Lisa created her weekly radio show, the Fertility Friday podcast, to connect women with a deeper understanding of how fertility and overall health are connected and intertwined with their menstrual health. The number one response from her listeners is always, why didn't anyone teach us this stuff when we were growing up? Exactly. That's so frustrating. (laughs) Her mission is to share the message of body literacy with as many women as possible. Each week, she conducts in-depth interviews with professionals who specialize in helping women to restore their fertility naturally. You can learn more by heading over to her website at fertilityfriday.com. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me, Charlene. It's my pleasure to be here. Great. Hey, and before I forget, um, please head over to our uh, podcast website, fertilityhour.com. There you can download a free report, How to Restore Your Fertility Naturally. Um, I think it's on, it says free report, share it on your social media channels. And um, it's expertly written by my podcast partner, Dr. Eva Keen. So thank you so much. And if you want to leave a comment, we're working really hard to give you great guests and information. We really appreciate it. We read all of them. Okay. So 15, you've been tracking your um, charts for 15 years. That must be so um, fascinating. Or I mean, I'm a total nerd and I think it's fascinating because what a wealth of information you have about yourself. I mean, it's like a, yeah. it's like a journal of your life, right? Yeah, totally. Like, this is that time I went through that breakup and look at my charts or this was a good time or I gained some weight during this time or, right? I mean, there's so much amazing information. So um, tell us about the the heavy bleeding, the Hashimoto's and kind of what, you know, what was the light bulb moment where you're like, I need to get on top of all of this. Yeah, for sure. So I feel like my story is kind of the opposite of the the usual way people figure out birth control. Mm -hmm. So when I was about 19 or so is when I needed birth control. And I had been put on the pill um, when I was about 16, because I had super heavy periods, like from the start, like the first one was heavy, painful. And they were really, really painful. And so I've had two children now. (laughs) Um, And so I can tell you that my period pain was as bad like was worse than the early stages of labor um wow the great thing about labor is like you get a contraction then you get a break and then you get like uh-huh. another contraction but period pain lasts all day long 
Um, so I struggled with that for a really, really long time. And so when I was 19 and I actually needed birth control, because I had been taking the pill for um, not for birth control, for other, like to, to kind of minimize the painful periods and things, I never took it at the right time. Like <laughs> I didn't mm-hmm. follow any of the rules. So I knew that I couldn't trust it for birth control because I would have constantly just been terrorized like at the thought that I was pregnant, didn't know it. So instead of going on the pill when I needed birth control, I actually went off. I was also concerned I have like a family history of um, fibroids and um, like the, the, that type of stuff. So I was concerned just in general um, because every time I had gone off the pill, my period pain was the same. Like it never, I could tell that it wasn't treating anything. So um, so yeah, so when I was about 19 years old, I, I, I was at university and I went to the University of Alberta. There was like a woman's center on campus and they always had these cool talks and speakers and things like that. That's how I discovered fertility awareness. I went to this talk and this author had written this really cool book and she was talking about it. And in her talk, she just mentioned that she had discovered that you weren't fertile all the time and you could actually learn to track your cycles. And I was like, aha. <laughs> like, oh, really? I must know about this. Yes. So I like took myself to the bookstore, got a copy of Taking Charge of Your Fertility. And oh my gosh, I love that book. Started charging my cycles when I was 19 and now I am 35. So that's a long, like I've been doing it for a long time. That's been my primary method of birth control. Wow, you kind of still look 19. That's pretty cool. But um, <laughs> the, the kids didn't age you. Um, okay, so anyways, I mean, just to um, Tony Weschler that wrote Taking Charge of Your Fertility, I think you interviewed her, right, on I one did. of your podcasts. You're so lucky because she actually retired this year and she said no more interviews. But um, that book is amazing. I mean, I tell, it should be on every woman's bookshelf, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a wealth of information. It gives you, so, oh my gosh, you feel like you got this when you read that book and you start practicing it. But um, well, tell tell us, and then, so you found out that you had fibroids at a certain point. That was confirmed. And then yeah. the, the Hashi's diagnosis as well. Um, yeah, so basically, I mean, around that time when I started charting my cycles, um, my cycles were really, really long. So mm-hmm. my average cycle was about 38, 39 days for a couple okay. of years when I first started charting and I went to the, you know, I went to doctors and they told me to go on the pill. Of course they did. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they say. Right. And uh, it was through one of my charting instructors. So I also being at the university of Alberta in Edmonton, it just so happened that that was the physical location of Justice HealthWorks back then. And so there was, and still is a group of women who would meet monthly for several months out of the year and, and just teach other women to chart. So I learned from trained instructors who knew what they were doing. And um, I, one of the times that they were, one of the instructors was reviewing my chart, she noticed that my temperatures were super low. So she suggested that I get tested for a thyroid issue. And so it was pretty devastating. I, I think I was, you know, early twenties, like 21, 22, when I um, got this diagnosis that I had um, Hashi- like it, it wasn't, I didn't get a Hashimoto's diagnosis back then. Um, I just was hypothyroid and I was put on thyroid medication and, um, and, but even, even so my cycles didn't just like mirac- miraculously turn around and I still struggled with painful periods for quite a long time. So, um, 
it, it, my journey wasn't such that it was like super easy and immediately now, like over the years, I had to continue to advocate for myself. I had to continue digging, doing research. And so, and furthering my education, part of my journey is becoming a fertility awareness educator. And um, so, you know, now my periods are fun, like, are, like I've, I figured that out, but mm -hmm. it took several years to do that. Um, and then my thyroid thing, thyroid issue was caught early. So it's never really caused me a ton of um, grief and problems, but it's still something that I have to manage, ensure that I'm eating well, getting enough rest, um, because it's obvious for me in my charts and also my physical symptoms if my thyroid ever goes off. So it's just mm -hmm. something that my charts help me to uh, monitor and keep in line. But isn't that beautiful? Because I mean, the, the self-care that you just talked about, that's for all women across the board, yeah. whether or not. And, and, and it's so nice that if you were to chart, I mean, I have not, I do not keep my charts now, but I would just think you could go, oh, my body is off. Like you're feeling a little bit off, but then you're confirmed with the secondary um, yeah. indication of it. And then, you know, you can address, oh, because sometimes we sort of, um, are in denial that we're overly stressed, we're not eating as well as we should, we're not sleeping well. And so sometimes we need kind of those markers. Oh, okay, this is really happening for me, right? Like, well, and we that's that why, disconnected. Absolutely. And that's why I love uh, charting. So for instance, I mean, I work with women, I teach women how to chart their cycles. So to use the fertility awareness method as either as a primary birth control or to, you know, support them if they're actively trying to conceive. But when you're charting and you, um, what happens is your menstrual cycle is like a vital sign and it changes based on your health and your fertility, but it's not only related to your fertility. So for me, I had a thyroid issue and that was evidenced by super low temperatures on my chart, um, really, really long cycles. Uh, and then other, you know, fatigue and like other other things but mm -hmm. um so you know now that my thyroid is like under control uh my cycles are within the normal range so they're usually around like 30 31 days in my case um and so one of the things like what you mentioned about being stressed and kind of ignoring those markers when you're charting your cycles you actually have essentially like a printout <laughs> of your health so uh, it's i think one of the most fascinating things that women discover when they learn they learn that it's more than just like you think, okay, wow, I can use this for birth control. I can figure out when I'm fertile on my cycle and I can use that information to do what I want. But as you continue charting, if you have a super stressful month, if you go traveling somewhere, if you get sick, you notice that your charts reflect that. Your charts basically respond to all of those things that happen. So it's, it's really profound because we've never been taught anything about our bodies, let alone the fact that our cycles are such so closely related to our health. Mm. Absolutely. You know, um, I, I practice Chinese medicine. And when I was in my studies, um, just like, I, I don't know if anyone's been to an acupuncturist, but we talk about poop a lot, like the quality of poop, <laughs> the smell of poop, does it float? But also the menses too, you know, the, the quality of the blood, does the blood have an odor? Are you clotting? What's the color of it? Is it watery? Is it thick in consistency? Is it dark? I mean, all those are such indicators of imbalances that are going on. Um, are you missing? your period are your periods painful but then if you go to a conventional doctor and you bring up those those are all kind of irrelevant signs to yeah. them because they don't really know how to it's not like they just don't know how to interpret them or they don't believe that those interpretive signs really mean anything um 
But um, I'm just to go back to the 15 years. I mean, gosh, I guess I'm a little bit lazy. Like, how did you keep motivating to do that? And, and I'm sure in the very beginning, 15 years ago, you were literally tracking on a piece of paper, the chart yeah. that you probably Xeroxed off the back of that, how to take charge of your fertility book or, or you know, maybe in those classes. Um, but then have you now evolved to um, 21st century technology of charting like apps and things like that? Tell you know, what That's do you a really use great now? question. I love that. Um, so I actually back back in the day, so yeah. like <laughs> circa two thousand. Um, so I'm like a super hyper nerd. Let's just put it out there, right? Like okay. Obviously, I learned about it, and I couldn't just leave it at that. I had to become a fertility awareness educator, start a podcast about it, and um, I'm even writing a book about it right now. So it's like cool. I'm take, I always take it to this level. It doesn't need to go to. So what I did was I actually like made these physical books. And I used to sell them and I would give them to my friends. So like all of my close friends have like <laughs> somewhere in like the piles from 2000 right. charting books they used to make for them. So when I first started charting, uh, that's what I did. I made myself an Excel spreadsheet, like a chart. And then I did Xerox it a zillion times and I bound it into a book. And so I had my own charting books. Mm. And so, I mean, the thing is that when you are um, actively using fertility awareness as your primary method of birth control, you're highly motivated to chart because when you chart, that's what tells you which days you can have the, the sex on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's, there's um, yeah, like, so I was, I was highly motivated to chart because I wasn't on the pill and because I was, you know, in university, a, a young woman, and I did not, it was not part of my intention to have a baby <laughs> um, at that stage. Like I wanted to complete my degree and figure out my career. Like I didn't sure. want to. So yeah, highly motivated. And uh, so it just, but I think the, the bigger thing is that it, it became a habit. So what I always say to my clients now is like, even if I wasn't, because now it's been so many years, even if I wasn't intending to like check for me because when I go to the bathroom or something, mm -hmm. like it's such a habit that I can't even not, like as soon as mm -hmm. I, like I'm always, like I always know what's going on because I'm all, like every time I go to the bathroom, it's just a habit. So it's not an additional um hassle or burden for me it's literally it's like brushing your teeth like is yeah brushing brushing your teeth is not a is not a hassle or burden no one has to tell you to brush your teeth and right right very similar to that um so I started with my paper charts and that was years like I, I would say at least five to seven to something years and at some point because when I first started charting, there were no apps. Let's just put that out there. Sure, well. yeah. Uh -huh. I didn't even have a cell phone when right, I graduated right. from high school. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, there were no apps. That was not a thing. And so eventually, I, I, I started charting with Kinjara for a little while. And that basically, it didn't last that long. I think I charted with Kinjara for like a year or two. And then... Um, when I was about 30, that's when I had my first child. So that's when I had my, my son. So that, that what was interesting about that is basically I'd been using fertility awareness for birth control for like 10 years. And then really like I switched. So it was, it was very interesting in my case. Um, you think after 10 years of like avoiding pregnancy, like you think that it's going to happen like that, right? Like mm -hmm. as soon as I switch it up and it actually, took four months and I actually got pregnant and then I had a miscarriage and mm -hmm. then I got pregnant like right after that. So I remember that was kind of like, <laughs> it was kind of weird because I had never had sex on my fertile days um, unprotected. 
And so then, you know, when my husband and I were ready to start trying, I was convinced that I would get pregnant that first exact sure. month and right. it didn't, it didn't happen. So then since then I've, I, I did use the Justice charting app for a little while, but I'm back to paper. So I actually mm. uh, made myself a charting book. Mm-hmm. So that's like the full circle. You asked for kind of like the, yeah. the so right. I'm back to paper. I'm a paper girl. I have my like pencil crayons that I draw my, uh-huh. my little dots and then I'm like that too. I know scheduling and I I could see with charting. I'm like, there was nothing wrong with that paper option. I kind of need to just see it all laid out. Because it's a a way to help me to remember because even like I always check, but writing it, like going into an app sometimes for me is like, Mm. especially at night when I'm trying to avoid the blue light and stuff like that. So just having the piece of paper, like, or having my book on my bedside, which is where it is right now. Um it's like a, it's a really helpful physical reminder to me. And so every night. That's good. And I'm glad you mentioned the blue light because right. It, it's, it's disruptive of sleep. So if you want to wake up, kind of look at your phone and do that thing and you know, your, your sleep is really sensitive and you wake up, you know, a lot of women are waking up throughout the night for whatever reasons. Um, well, that's, that kind of brings up another question so a lot of women have sleep issues. So yeah. like, how's, you know, I mean, that that's kind of a concern. And, and we'll talk about like the, these fertility sensor type bracelets, like the Ava bracelet that, that came out in 2017. Um, that's trying to kind of bypass the erraticness of some women's sleep, because how much is that throwing off your temperature and um, not, not giving you the most accurate um, data points? Well, so that's, there's a lot of really interesting pieces just in that statement. So okay, the first thing you said um, was, you know, how women have a lot of sleep issues. And that's something I've definitely seen with my clients. Just, I mean, we're, we're human beings and we live in a digital age. So mm-hmm. um, I think that what's interesting is what the research shows is that like, if you're looking at like your computer screen or your phone or your television, you know, past 9 p.m., the effect of bright kind of blue light, um, which is, yeah, like the sun also has blue light, like blue light isn't inherently bad, but the effect of having that light at nighttime when your body's supposed to be preparing for sleep, uh, that does have a disruptive effect on your hormones, similar to what you'd have from a cup of coffee. So from uh, a more hormonal um, menstrual cycle standpoint, Sleep is really important. So some of the common issues that come up for women who are either paying attention to their cycles or not, but especially women who are trying to conceive and kind of having some difficulties in paying attention to what's going on. Um, Many women struggle with um, uh, spotting. So they might have a couple days before their period, they have some bleeding that's not their period, but it happens for several days before their period. For women who are tracking their cycles um, after ovulation, you're supposed to have about 12 to 14 days before your period. That's called the luteal phase. And so that's a healthy luteal phase about that average of 12 to 14 days. But many women will find that they're, they start bleeding, say about day nine or day 10. So their luteal phase is on the shorter side. And so when you track your menstrual cycle, when you get an understanding of um, the hormonal pattern that's happening throughout your menstrual cycle, you start to understand that your menstrual cycle reflects what's happening with you hormonally as well. So Mm -hmm. the first half of the cycle, that's when your ovaries are producing estrogen as they're preparing for ovulation. Eventually the estrogen hits like a 
a, a set point and that triggers ovulation. And then once you ovulate, your ovaries start producing progesterone and, and produces it then for that luteal phase. So when you have say spotting before your period or when you have a shorter luteal phase, that is an indication that your progesterone just isn't quite cutting it and it's potentially on the low side. So um, I, the reason I'm kind of going on what feels like a tangent is because sleep disruptions and light exposure at nighttime, that impacts your hormones. So um, the more light, the less melatonin when you're supposed to have it when you're sleeping. And that has a negative effect on your progesterone level. So the reason I'm going on this big tangent is because for many women addressing their sleep, making sure they're getting enough sleep, making sure they're sleeping in the dark, can have a profound and very significant impact on their menstrual cycle such that their luteal phase might lengthen if light is the issue. So there's other mm -hmm. issues that can cause that. So it's not to say like this is a blanket, like everybody's gonna be totally fixed. Um, but if that's the issue, then many women have found that, okay, yeah, like I changed my sleep environment, I sleep in the dark and wow, my menstrual cycle, mm -hmm. uh, my luteal phase is lengthened, my spotting is less and um, yeah. Uh, so there was another part of your question, though, and that's with regards to like the the disruption of sleep and how it can affect mm -hmm. your basal body temperatures. So of course, for women who might not be familiar with charting, um, you take your temperature every morning first thing before you get up um, as part of charting because after ovulation, your temperature actually goes up. So if you plot all all of your temperatures on the graph after ovulation, you'll see that your temperature actually rises and stays high. Um, so I mean in terms of like getting an accurate temperature, ideally you're going to want to get at least five hours of uninterrupted sleep, like in a perfect world, right? Like, you, mm -hmm. um, gosh, at, le at least. Yeah. Yeah. If um, you want to function. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, I don't, I don't mean that like five hours is good yeah. for the yeah. purpose of actually feeling rested, but in terms of getting um, an accurate temperature. Got it. Got it. Okay. Then you're like right, at thank rest. You. Uh -huh. Yeah. So your body resets. So um, I have had a couple of clients try the Ava bracelet. The challenge with Ava is that it's on the wrist and the wrist is not one of the three places that we take the temperature from. So um, when you're taking your temperature for the purpose of charting your cycles to identify ovulation, it's oral, auxiliary, under your arm, or vaginal. And the reason for that is because those places have a kind of like a stable accurate measure of your metabolism and that's what we're measuring like we're measuring your basal metabolic rate so all that that means is like you're resting it's kind of like the like if you were at rest for a long time it's like the very baseline amount of energy your body's the baseline energy expenditure and mm -hmm. so um some of my clients who've tried the ava the wrist the temperature is actually a bit lower or different than it would be right so, um, I mean, it might like, it, it, it all depends. It might work for some and not for others, but from what I've seen, and I, but I'm also coming from like a charting your cycle fertility awareness educator using this method for birth control type of perspective. So mm -hmm. when you're coming from that type of perspective, you're looking for a specific kind of like, no, we need the basal <laughs> body temperature type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not to say that it couldn't be helpful for someone who's just wanting to kind of like, like it's it you know what I mean but yeah I yeah. do let's talk about he healthy menses because um like you said we're not taught about our bodies and we're not taught about kind of what an ideal healthy menstrual cycle looks like um and I'm talking about like sight smell you know the whole thing the clotting I mean there's so many things that women kind of you know we we get our menses from like 11 years old to like 13 or 14 and then we 
you know, we have our menses and we do our thing and we just, it's a little bit of a private event and, and you don't know that it's not normal, right? Cause it's normal for you. Yeah. Big, big clots, yeah, dark yeah. blood, you know, I don't know. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Like what, how do you educate women on what is an ideal menstrual cycle? Do you get yeah. a lot of pain and cramping? Is that normal? Get it every, you know, um, well, I think the first thing to kind of consider, especially because we have our, our period and we have our menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. So the menstrual cycle is the whole thing from yeah. okay. starts like mm-hmm. day, so day one of your period, like the first day of actual flow. So even in the example earlier regarding like the spotting. So if you have like spotting, that is not the first day of your period. The first day is actually the day of flow. So that would be day one of your menstrual cycle. And then you would have your period. Um, you'd have, you know, several days before ovulation. So at some point you would, if you're paying attention to your fertile signs, so the three main fertile signs are your basal body temperature, cervical position, and cervical mucus. So in the whole menstrual cycle, um, at, you know, at some point you would expect to start to see mucus. Uh, cervical mucus can either look uh, if you're paying attention to it, it can look something like creamy white ham- hand lotion. Um, and it can also look like raw egg whites. I think that's important to talk about because a lot mm-hmm. of women are not, we're, we're just not taught. So a lot of women have found themselves in the doctor's office thinking they have like an infection when really it's just their healthy cervical because they didn't know about because no mm-hmm. one told them. Um, so that happens as you approach ovulation and then you ovulate in a healthy cycle. Um, and then after ovulation, as we mentioned, you'd have about 12 to 14 days without mucus before you um, have your next period. So that's kind of just the general cycle. So a healthy menstrual cycle ranges from anywhere from like about 24 to 35 days. That's considered to be the healthy range. So of course, the average is closer to 28 or 29 days. So that's what the studies show us, of course. Um, but I think the myth is that every cycle has to be 28 days or it's abnormal. So there's a lot of women with like 27 day cycles that think there's a problem. And a lot of women with 29 day cycles that think it's a problem Mm -hmm. or 31 or 32. Um, And it's important to know that there is variation. Um, It is absolutely normal for the cycle not to be exactly the same every single time. Um, the, The problem arises when you have more than say eight days between. So if you have a cycle that's like, um, 24 days one month, 37 days the next month, 52 days the next month, then 28 days the month after that. Like that's a sign of, of an issue. So I think that's helpful just in mm-hmm. the overall sense. Um, and in terms of the actual period, uh, so uh, a healthy normal period ranges from about three to seven days in length. And we would expect to see like a flow pattern that's kind of like a crescendo decrescendo. So meaning that like it starts moderate to heavy, like, and it actually flows. Like, so we've got the faucet like on, (laughs) but it's moderate to heavy and then kind of gradually decreases. So that like crescendo decrescendo type thing. Um, We would expect it to be a variant of red. So uh, whether that's like a wine or something, but we would expect it to be red. Uh, and of course, like in a healthy period, you wouldn't expect to have a bunch of clotting. Um, you wouldn't expect it to, to, uh, to look like black or like really oxidized. <clears throat> and so in terms of the quantity, like how much bleeding, um, that's a big topic between like among my clients, it's something we've talked about a lot mm-hmm. about. 
but um, what's normal in terms of like what we would expect uh, for the volume would be somewhere between 25 to 80 milliliters of bleeding. And so I think in the, the US, it's like that would be between like one and like four to five ounces or something mm -hmm. like that. So um, the reason I would say that it's helpful as women, especially like we've been taught I think most women know like if it's super heavy that's a problem like we all have that awareness but we're not always taught that if it's too light that is actually a problem as well <laughs> so your period is like a printout again of what was happening hormonally the, the month before and so again like estrogen and progesterone are what develop your uterine lining they each have their own roles estrogen causes line, the lining to grow progesterone causes it to mature and so then when you get your period at the end of the month that gives you information about what was happening hormonally. Um, so I think that's really helpful. And then, so 25 milliliter being on the low end, so like at least an ounce, like if you use menstrual cups, like you fill it over the course of your whole period, at least once, <laughs> like not like mm -hmm. all together, mm -hmm. like if you added all of it up, you should fill it one time um, over the whole period. And then 80 milliliters is the top. And the reason that that is the top is because typically if women are having periods that are heavier than that they're more likely to have um like anemia iron deficiency and it's interesting because iron deficiency can cause heavy periods and it can also be a result so there's this interesting mm -hmm. relationship between the iron so but i think it's helpful as women for us to have these guidelines for us to to know just to have a sense of like oh wow there is something as too light there is something as too heavy but it's also important to know that um Every woman is different. So it's possible to have a period on the lighter side and for mm -hmm. some women just have lighter periods and some women just have heavier, like we, our uter, uteri mm -hmm. are probably not all the same size. So like, we're not all going to have the same. Right, right. <laughs> um, I, I started using a menstrual cup uh, about four or five years ago. And even though a couple of times it's let me down, the little, little leak and spill, you have to get used to that. I like it because... I like looking at my body fluids and not, you know, but in just a, a way of like, I like to see what's going on and it shows me, I don't know, just the color consistency. If there's like an odor or if there's clotting, you kind of, I guess with pads too. Um, but do you give, do you educate people on tampons? Cause like I come from background, we don't do tampons because um, I know some women prefer them, but, and, and there's natural ones, but uh, there's a lot of toxic, um, sanitary type pads and tampons. And I, I think they should be illegal. Honestly, <laughs> I really do. And it's just, it's ridiculous that they, that they're put up against our sexual organs and they're toxic, but what, what's yeah. your take on that? Well, I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, tampons and pads. Um, <laughs> uh, so let me just kind of backtrack a little bit. So yeah. I gave you like the history of my like menstrual charting situation. Okay. So I discovered menstrual cups right around the same time that I was kind of going through my fertility mm. awareness metamorphosis. Yeah. So I've been using menstrual cups since like 2000. Yeah. Those instead, right? That's the first no, one that came I, to mark. Oh. I started with the, it was called the keeper. So okay. Like brown. I and you kept it. It wasn't like a disposable thing. Yeah. Like it was, it was, oh. a, it was made of natural gum rubber. This was like pre-Diva Cup. Like, I feel like I'm yeah dating myself, but it was pre-Diva Cup. And um, so 
the reason that I switched is that, again, like I, I went to this great university and there was all these fantastic events, like all these feminist women's, like it was right. fantastic, like my 20s. Where were you learn awesome. about menstrual cups, yeah, yeah. and yeah. that's the party talk, okay, right. And so I went to this um, information session and it was like the first time I had ever been informed about menstrual products. So it was the first time I learned that um, the, the materials that are used to make conventional pads and tampons are genetically like they're engineered, like you take a team of people to create fabrics that are super absorbent. And so they're so absorbent that they absorb like your own bodily fluids and cause problems. And also um, they just did simple things. Like I remember they put a tampon in water. So it obviously stuck with me because we're talking like 17 years later and let like kind of, you see what happens, like it kind mm -hmm. of just expands and then they pulled it out and there was all of these kind of little fibers inside the water. Mm -hmm. And so then it, it, to illustrate that all of those fibers and things stay in, inside of your vagina, <laughs> vagina right? Yeah. So it's like not, and then, yeah, like, and then Chemical also, fibers. Yeah, yeah like, so yeah. rayon, dioxins, yeah. research study, like, yeah. Perfumes. like a study that came out that showed yeah. that dioxins were found in tampons. Like, so from a, a holistic standpoint, using conventional pads and tampons that are bleached and full of like chemicals, mm putting them in your vagina is a very bad idea. There's a lot of women who have, um, like I myself had painful periods for years and there's a lot of women who struggle with that and find that if they stop using the chemical laden products, mm. their pain minimizes. So it's a huge problem, <laughs> huge. And I remember just when I first started using menstrual cups, it was like, whoa, cause if any, you know how like, I feel like I'm going to tangent again, but you know how all of the commercials about menstrual products it's the blue liquid and it's mm -hmm. water mm -hmm. when you bleed it is not water like it is blood it is tissue it is secretions so a tampon we all know does not absorb tissue <laughs> so they're right. not really that effective and then if you if you don't bleed enough then when you pull them out they're uncomfortable so just from a practical uh -huh. standpoint as well. so oh, when i switched point. to menstrual cups like so many years ago i remember thinking like wow like this is what happens when you have like a for women by women type product mm -hmm. because all of a sudden you have something that actually is designed to hold what i have like what comes out of me which is not water and it's certainly not blue liquid Mm -hmm. um, it's mm -hmm. very comfortable so yeah I'm I'm totally on board I um I have had issues with leaking in the past I finally found uh like I've I so I used the, the keeper I used the diva cup I've mm -hmm. used the lunette cup and most recently now I'm on the maluna 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 okay because and I, I have had no affiliation with them I'm just like an enthusiast yeah yeah no that's <laughs> good to know um I've only used the luna cup and I mean, or the diva cup and um, it, there's just a learning curve. And I guess on your heavier days, you do use a pad, um, you know, because there might be some leakage and, and I think, and, and I'm just assuming that some women are like, Oh, that's gross. I don't want to like put my finger up there and pull it out. And you probably have something way more sensitive than I want to say like, Oh, get over it, you know, but like, <laughs> Um, I just think you need to really get in touch with, you know, your body in that way. And it's not gross at all. Um, but well, what would you say? You're more tactful, I'm sure. Well, I think it's complicated. So like when I was, 
uh, in university, like I volunteered with the sexual assault center and then I ended up working for the sexual assault center of Edmonton. And so I used to go to like schools and high schools and talk about the impact of sexual violence and stuff like that. So I'm just aware that there are a lot of reasons why women mm. are not necessarily comfortable with touching their body. And mm. it's not always like because of a uh, history of abuse or violence. It could also just be the abuse and violence that is afflicted on women every day, just when mm. you turn on the TV and-, and Religious, right? Um, <laughs> but upbringings that, you know, make you feel not comfortable, right? Well, um, if you think well about, like, if you think about, like, if you think about even just the vagina, like the concept of your vulva and your reproductive organs as mm. a woman, we're not given a lot of positive ideas about it. Most women think that there's something wrong with the way their vulva looks or smells. Mm. Um, we all like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. many women have never even taken a hand mirror and looked at their vulva. And so in my work, in my line of work, I mean, I'm, you know, showing women how to interpret their cervical mucus secretions and, and like encouraging them to, 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 you know, check their cervical position and things like that. And yeah, I have clients who are absolutely not comfortable with touching their cervix and it's a big and complicated conversation. We do have to mm. be sensitive to the fact that we're not, first of all, um, when I went to, when I was in junior high, I can still remember lear learning that I was fertile every day. And I, there was like, we didn't learn anything basically which is not true there's only six days or so in the cycle that you can actually conceive mm -hmm. but um i remember looking at the diagram of the vulva in class mm -hmm. and um it was back then it was different because i like that was like in the 90s but i remember the vul the, the vulva that we looked at it was like there was like a dot that was like the clitoris and i literally like went home and like looked at my vulva because I was so, because I didn't have the dot. So I actually thought that there was something wrong with my vulva. Mm, wow. And so part, like, this is a big conversation because as women, we're not educated about our bodies. Mm. So how can we expect women to be super comfortable with, you no. know, using a menstrual cup and putting their, <laughs> putting their hands in their vaginas and all of this kind of yeah. stuff when we li literally, I didn't even have an anatomically correct model of a vulva when I learned about my body and my fertility. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And I knew you'd have a much more sensitive <laughs> overlook at that than, than you need to get over yourself. I mean, yeah. I didn't literally mean that, but I thank know. you so much for bringing that. And I, I love having a daughter. My daughter, you know, is five, but ever since she could speak or whatever, she knows it's her vagina. She looks at it. She's very comfortable with it. There's no cutesy name because the vagina is a weird, I, I don't know, maybe that's not the, the prettiest name for something, but um, I just want her to like, Yep. It's not something you don't talk about and it's something you can look at and touch and um, you can call it by its proper name. And um, so anyways, we get to sort of reparent ourselves for our children and, and teach them things that, you know, we weren't allowed to sort of be comfortable around. Um, yeah. you well, know. my sons run around my penis. My oh penis. yeah. Boys seem very proud of that. And it's yeah. out. <laughs> I'm washing my testicles. Exactly. <laughs> they do. They they aren't. They aren't as inhibited uh, in general with that. But yeah. but girls. Oh, you're not supposed to do that. Or that's don't call it that. Or I don't know. Just all these weird things around it. It's just kind of. Um, it's rough. Okay, let's talk about. I'm going to be devil's advocate here and say. All right, all this sounds interesting, but it sounds like a lot of work. And have you ever heard of Clear Blue Easy? 
Yes, I have. <laughs> and so what, like, why do I need to do, I mean, if I'm just trying to get my fertile days, I mean, don't I just use the OPKs and kind of make my life a lot easier? I love that question um, because there's no real like simple answer. So the clear blue fertility monitor is actually specifically used in one of the types of fertility awareness methods. So if you've ever heard of the Marquette method of fertility awareness charting, um, it actually utilizes the clear blue fertility monitor um, because it measures your estrogen, like as your estrogen levels rise from my understanding. And so um, it actually, is one, it's, it's an actual legitimate method of fertility awareness charting. It's different than checking mucus and, you know, all of those other aspects of it. Um, but so there's like a, an actual type of fertility awareness charting that utilizes the monitor. So my understanding of it is that, you know, it, it detects as the estrogen levels rise to a certain point. So that is the indication of when you're in your fertile window. So you can actually use that information to either, you know, try to achieve or try to prevent pregnancy. Okay. Um, so uh, I, I suppose that's a, a good place to start the answer of the question, which is to say that there are a lot of different ways to chart. Um, the way that I teach uh, and, you know, what I do, I, I teach women the symptothermal method of birth control, which is a combination of the symptom, like the symptoms. And so that is your cervical mucus, that is your cervical position, both change in response to estrogen and progesterone. So these give you an indication of when you are in your fertile window, when you're capable of getting pregnant. So for the women who are kind of like, what is she talking about? Um, in order to get pregnant, uh, basically in order for sperm to survive long enough in your body <laughs> to fertilize an egg, uh, you have to have uh, cervical mucus in order to make that happen. So. Um, when you have, when you're in your fertile window, your estrogen levels are, are rising and that triggers your cervix to release cervical mucus and it tr triggers changes in your cervix, like, you know, the, the position and the, the texture. And so when you make cervical mucus um, and you have sex, the sperm actually, like the cervical mucus keeps the sperm alive. It's the right pH, it feeds them and it gets them all ready so that when you release an egg, it's okay. So, so we have that. So um, when you use the symptothermal method, it's those symptoms plus the temperature. And so the temperature doesn't help you predict anything, but it helps to confirm that you've ovulated because your temperature goes up after you've ovulated. And um, so it seems like it's, you know, it, it sounds like a lot of work uh, because you have to check your, you know, cervical mucus every day, you have to check your temperature every day. But uh, it's not necessarily for everybody. I think that's the, that's the other thing. I mean, that's why we have so, even within fertility awareness, that's why there's so many different ways to, to check it and chart it. Uh, but at the end of the day, as I mentioned, you know, for myself and for women who use this method and do it, it becomes a habit. And it's, it's it, it, all in all, it doesn't take that long. You invest some time initially to learn so, you know, you get yourself uh, taking charge of your fertility by Tony Weschler. You take a class with someone like myself who can walk you through to make sure that you get the effectiveness. So for those of the listeners who may not be familiar with fertility awareness, there are actual like valid scientific research studies that have been done that show that when used correctly, this method is 99.4% effective, um, the symptothermal method in particular. So um, once you get in the habit of it and you learn it, it's like brushing your teeth. It really doesn't take a lot of time out of your day. Um, and so there are other methods, like because the temperature confirms that you've ovulated, some women use temperature only. 
so there's devices like the lady comp um, and I think Daisy incorporates some of the mucus uh, information but those are essentially like super thermometer computers <laughs> with a price to match that um, will actually kind of like calculate your so as a fertility awareness educator we're, we typically are a little bit less on the side of like use a calculator to, to calculate your fertility. Mm -hmm. um, but there's lots of different options uh, for women. You asked also about ovulation predictor kits. And so ovulation predictor kits are very helpful in the sense that um, they're detecting a hormone called luteinizing hormone. And so as you approach ovulation, like your estrogen surges eventually gets to the point that it triggers ovulation. And what that means is that when your pituitary, like when your brain detects the high estrogen levels, um, your pituitary gland releases luteinizing hormone and that is what then actually triggers your ovary to release the egg. And so luteinizing hormone is released like 24 to 36 hours before ovulation. So that's what the ovulation predictor kits are testing. And um, so it's, it's helpful, but the challenge is that it, it I, I think that the best use of ovulation predictor kits are within the context of actually understanding how your cycles work because when you're paying attention you're charting your cycles for instance like let's say you're charting your cervical mucus you will produce cervical mucus like in a healthy cycle three to six days um on average before you ovulate and so some women may have a, a few more some a few less but in general and mm -hmm. so when you're trying to conceive you want to utilize your days of mucus because like i said the sperm lives in it that's what keeps it alive. So when you're checking your, when you're using an ovulation predictor kit, what I've seen is a lot of uh, women who I've worked with, they'll wait for a positive to have sex. And by doing that and not combining that information mm -hmm. along with their mucus, they can miss several days that are actually fertile that they could be having sex, like could be utilizing. The other challenge is that for some women, the ovulation predictor kit is not helpful. So for women that have PCOS, for example, P one of the characteristics of PCOS, uh, polycystic ovary syndrome, which is characterized by irregular ovulation, um, one of the, the classic kind of characteristics of it is an elevated <laughs> luteinizing hormone. Mm -hmm. So for some women who, are, who have PCOS, they, they'll, they get all these positive, like it'll just read positive a lot. <laughs> and, it, mm -hmm. and it's because they have elevated LH levels. So for them, it can be frustrating because it, it does not give any like additional useful information to help them pinpoint their fertility. Mm, thanks for clarifying that. And um, yeah, and, and for um, women who are a little bit on the older side, like I had my daughter, I got pregnant when I was 41. The OPK kits were pretty unreliable um, for me. I mean, I, I used them as a backup, you know, I tracked everything, but um, I don't know. So and I, well, and I, I don't want to say that they're like not good or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Also, they're not like good or like, I wouldn't say they're yeah, good or yeah. bad. They're a helpful tool. I, I would say the, in, from what I've seen, the most helpful use of them is with the mucus. So then mm -hmm. even, even in terms of like, cause they cost money, right? Mm -hmm. So like if you start to see cervical mucus and you know that that's a sign of fertility, you can mm -hmm. wait until you start to see the mucus to then start peeing on the sticks. Mm. as opposed to what the doctor typically says, which Smart. is probably eight to whatever. Cause what if you don't yeah. ovulate until day 19? Like that's like eight, like that's a lot of days of peeing mm. for no reason when you could have just waited until yeah. you started to see mucus. 
Right. And, and Lisa, what about this? And, um, okay, I'm referring to myself here, but like when I was trying to conceive, um, you know, you, you want that really like egg white stretchy mucus and sometimes you weren't really finding it. And I know there's a lot of factors, you know, one, the simplest one being like, you could just be too dehydrated or whatever, but you talk about that more because it, you know, a lot of women could go like, gosh, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm getting that. You know, I don't get the cervical, the stretchy cervical mucus that I um, need during that time. Well, yeah, no, that's a great question. And I mean, there's a lot of factors at play. Let's just like kind of put it out there. So I think the first thing is that um, like if you're tracking your cycle, you know, you're only going to see cervical mucus during you like I shouldn't say only because there's there's lots of different factors but typically you're going to see cervical mucus as you approach ovulation so it's all related to hormones um and so if you're not you know if you're if your estrogen levels are really low that is going to have an impact on your cervical mucus production for example um so there's all these factors so I'll try to go through as many factors as I can um get through one of the factors that influences how much cervical mucus that you produce is age. So just naturally, uh, a woman in her early 20s, she has more of the cervical crypts that produce that um, peak type, clear, stretchy mucus. And naturally, just it's not good or bad, it's just like anything else, as we get older, we actually, our, our cervical crypts change and we end up having fewer of the crypts just over time that produce the clear, stretchy mucus. So um, whereas a woman in her 20s, it would be typical for her to have say even like five to eight days of mucus in her fertile window like in early 20s by the time we hit our 30s it's more like that three to six day window that I was sharing with you Mm -hmm. by the time we hit our 40s it's more like one to three days and statistically that is what that is what it is so when I work with a woman in her 40s um, we you know every woman is a bit different but it isn't it's pretty no like there's a different parameter in your 40s that we would consider normal versus in the 20s so i think that's one thing um another thing is hormonal birth control use so hormonal birth control specifically has a negative impact on cervical mucus production so as i mentioned you know it's a natural aging process that we go through as women um and are naturally as we get older we have fewer crypts that produce that clear stretchy mucus but um (laughs) Hormonal birth control accelerates that aging process. So for women who have been on hormonal birth control for like say 10 years or 15 years or however many years, uh, it's not uncommon for them to have fewer days of cervical mucus. So I've worked with a number of clients who've been on birth control for the long term. And mm-hmm. um, in some cases, uh, it takes a couple of cycles before they start to see mucus. Uh, in other cases, they'll see mucus, they'll see the non-peak, the lotion type mucus. Mm-hmm. But I've worked with clients that haven't seen peak. Um, mm-hmm. So another factor is um, cervical dysplasia, cervical surgery. So it's like a super complex conversation, but um, <laughs> hormonal birth control, uh, long-term hormonal birth control use in particular, is associated with uh, the depletion of a number of important nutrients. Uh, one of those nutrients is folate. And folate plays a very specific role in supporting cervical health. So um, (laughs) what that means is that for women who are on birth control for the long term, they're more likely to have abnormal cervical cells, cervical dysplasia, like this is shown in the research. And Mm -hmm. also I've seen it time and time again in my practice. So what can happen is that then these women are more likely to have like an abnormal pap 
And then if, if it doesn't get any better, they're more likely to have like a procedure, like, um, like the leap procedure. Or right. like a, um, and so that is a literal like cutting off of a piece, like scraping of the cervix. So there's a lot of women who've had these, um, you know, surgeries and different uh, procedures done on their cervix. And that is directly impacting their cervical crypts. So for women who've had those types of procedures, it's not uncommon for them to have fewer days of mucus or potentially a bit less mucus production. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you Google like <laughs> cervical mucus production, you get like this lovely variety of all these mm-hmm. fancy, you know, yeah. herbs and all this stuff. And I think that's <laughs> yeah. what people want. Like they want me to say like, oh, take this thing or take mm-hmm. that thing. But really like we have to look at the whole picture. So when I'm working with somebody like we, I need to know what the history is. I need to know what the past, um, like, you know, birth control history, mm-hmm. uh, as I mentioned, cervical mucus is also impacted by hormone production. So we want to know like, okay, is there a thyroid thing going on? Like, is there like, is there some other reason that your hormones might like, we, you know, is there something yes. that's causing? So it's, it's a, I think it's helpful to really recognize that um, there's, there's, there's more to the story. It's not always as simple as just taking this. Um, I think one of, one of the things that um, is recommended for women by certain doctors is to take um, like this, this like called like mucinex and it's like, it's like, Oh, right. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it, what it does is it like, it, cause you're, if you think it like we call it cervical mucus, right? Mm. Like it's like your nasal mucus. So this would loosen the mucus. Right? Yes. Um, but that doesn't necessarily address like a, a, a structural issue with your cervix due to yes. cervical surgery. So I think um, it's helpful to look at the whole picture. The other thing is that, um, what I've also seen women who have had like, so they, they actually have had kind of injury to the cervix due to surgery, like we'll just kind of call it that, um, but still conceive, even though they don't have like low, like loads of, because fertility is complicated. Um, mm. There's not like one factor. Mm-hmm. Um, so if a woman is, uh, and the other thing I have, I was actually super curious about this because especially in the way that I, teach women to chart it's like super like detailed and so you're checking for me because throughout the day and you're like how much do I have how much does it stretch how many times did I see it today and like you're recording all this data and so it leads a lot of my clients to think that you're supposed to have like loads of it so just to kind of like (laughs) you know how much should we have so there was this one study that actually aspirated because out of women's services Mm -hmm. to see how much and what they found was that during the fertile window it was like a quarter teaspoon Oh, wow. Well, because yeah. you're, you're always talking about egg white. And so yeah. when you crack an egg, yeah. you, you think like of copious, the- yeah, long, stretchy. Oh, interesting. So women- well, that's a good, yeah, that's a good perspective on it. Yeah, like a lot of women have totally normal mucus production. Like they'll see it like once or twice a day, like mm-hmm. a couple of days of their cycle. And they're like, I don't have any mucus. And you're like, actually, that's about right. Mm-hmm. I like that. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and like I said, it's complicated, a bigger, like a bigger problem, like cervical mucus is really important. It, it um, filters out bad sperm and all this stuff, but a lot of men have really poor sperm parameters. So I think that the challenge with fertility, as you know, I'm sure, um, mm. is that we're the women, it's all our, it's my fault. If I'm not getting pregnant, it's my fault. If I get mm. a, mis- if I have a miscarriage, it's my fault. It's because my mucus isn't good enough. It's because my cycle isn't perfect. Blah, blah. And mm. the last thing we think of is to get our male partner's sperm tested. So, uh, 
it's very like we have a sperm crisis uh mm-hmm. i i'm using it sounds dramatic but i'm actually serious yeah it is so, a crisis uh-huh yeah like if you look yeah. at the sperm production like 50 years ago to now mm-hmm. all of the parameters are at least half more than half of what they were mm-hmm. um and so I just want to kind of, it's, it's all, I always want to bring it back to like, it's more complicated than just taking like evening primrose oil so that you can have more mucus. Like there's Mm -hmm. more going on and we want to look at it in a kind of a holistic type of a way so that we don't think that it's just, if it was just that simple, everyone would do it and it would just work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for, thanks for bringing that up. I mean, two things is um, I mean, we're all guilty of it. Googling things or just talking to other people. Oh, that worked for me. And then because we are, we all are very individual in whatever is our imbalances, what's the underlying cause of the imbalances. And then also um, sperm, sperm parameters have changed drastically. And, um, and I think a lot of men do get their sperm quality checked, but um, it can be quite low and considered borderline and, and, and they're told they're fine. I've seen it. Like I've seen the actual, like the, like I work with a client, they show me the sperm analysis and they're like, yeah, the doctor told me it's totally fine. And I'm like, you know what this number means? That means that it's like 4% morphology. And that's considered four out of every hundred sperm are normal. Yeah. That's considered (laughs) normal. I know. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, I know. So that's unfortunate. Um, because I think that's, that might be a reason for much of the unexplained infertility because the woman is thoroughly examined and then the man is greatly ignored and then they go on for sometimes years. I mean, it's heartbreaking. It's really uh, unnecessary. They look at the man later in the process, you know, like Mm. after you've already, so this is the challenge too. like after you've already been trying for six months to a year, finally we think, okay, let me look into the guy. When you discover low parameters, it's not the end of the game. It is possible to improve sperm parameters, especially if you're working with like a a practitioner who is coming from a, a, you know, natural perspective to kind of fully evaluate. And like, so it's possible, but sperm takes from inception to like ejaculate at least 90 days mm-hmm. to, to kind of fully form so then in the, like you've already been trying for a year and now you need an extra four to six months for his sperm like it's it just it's so worth I mean, it. I, but i'm just kind of bringing up yeah like, i know we we want to kind of look at us uh, as women we kind of uh-huh. assume that we're the problem and all of that kind of stuff and it's not to blame anybody or anything yeah. like that um but there, I just want to kind of point out that there's multiple factors and it's, it's, it's for, fertility challenges are complicated. Um, it's more than a simple, like take a supplement and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, especially like, yeah, it could, you could think, oh, it's my mucus. Um, but it could actually just be something like sperm. And oh, it's a good idea to consider combination. Yeah. Yeah. initially like in the early stages like don't wait a year to test a sperm type of thing oh right exactly and um and i mean honestly i mean i think testing sperm too like a lot of times they don't test morphology or i mean you need to have someone who's actually going to sit down so you know um when they say that your partner's okay what does that really mean that four percent of his sperm is is you have to get the test yeah 
Yeah, because the sperm yeah. are the vectors of DNA that are going to create your child. And um, especially for natural conception, I think it, it needs to be like a minimum of like 15 million viable sperm. But the good news is you're a partner and you can do much to improve the sperm and egg quality and the menstrual cycle. And um, that's why we're here empowering women and couples, right? Yes. I mean, <laughs> that's what drives us because it's like, it's such a stressful issue right now. I mean, I don't have to, that sounds like a broken record. Of course it's stressful, but it, it, there's a lot that can be done. So if you're listening today and you're feeling, hopefully you're feeling inspired and, you know, curious, I'm actually feeling inspired to start tracking my temperature again. I'm always thinking, <laughs> God, are my adrenals, uh, you know, kind of worn out and then I'll do a test. It seems fine. But you know, these tests, they're, you know, um, they're, they're not a hundred percent. It's kind of more, we need to listen to our bodies. And uh, like, there's this book, it says, um, why, oh, I forgot the name of it. Like, why do I still feel this way when my lab tests are normal? It's referring to a thyroid, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like, you know, you do a thyroid test. Oh, it seems fine. Oh God. But I have like 20 signs and symptoms when I go and like look at different checklists. So, um, and, 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 you know, that could be, we were going to talk about that. And now we're just, we're kind of running past our time, but just wanted to touch upon it. Um, one thing was about tracking. Of course, it cannot diagnose um, a, th a thyroid problem specifically, like what's going on with the thyroid, but it could be a first indicator um, yeah. that you're having a sluggish thyroid issue or adrenal, right? Like that your adrenals are under-functioning. Um, well, yeah. I mean, when it comes to like actually diagnosing things, yeah, that, that requires a trip to the doctor. Um, but the menstrual cycle chart, like I mentioned, is a reflection of what's happening in your health in a very literal and um, kind of real time type of way. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, like thyroid disorders are a good example because there are a number of markers that show up on the menstrual cycle chart in women who do have uh, issues with their thyroid. So the thyroid is like the body's thermostat. It regulates your body temperature. And so naturally then when you're charting your cycles and every morning when you get out of bed, you're measuring your basal body temperature, which is a, a measure of your metabolic rate. Um, when you have, say for instance, like a low functioning thyroid, um, that means that your temperature is too low. Like that's, that's what it means. Like it means your metabolism is too low. So, um, you know, for myself, that was how my thyroid issue was picked up because my temperatures were too low. And then when I actually did go and confirm and get lab testing done, it confirmed what I saw in my chart. And that's often what happens when I'm working with clients where the chart gives us this kind of, it's like an early warning system. It's like the fire alarm, mm -hmm. um, your menstrual cycle, uh, you know, whether you are ovulating super late, like it's delayed, whether you... Um, have very irregular or very few cycles in a year, <clears throat> whether your period has got completely gone away. All of those are like the fire alarm going off in mm -hmm. your house, giving you an early warning sign. So specifically to thyroid, thyroid is really complicated as well. Um, and if you suspect you have a thyroid disorder, it's, it's, uh, it's not always good enough just to go to your run-of-the-mill doctor. It's, it's often better to find a, a practitioner who actually specializes in thyroid health because it is possible for you to have completely normal lab ranges, normal. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put that in air quotes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what one doctor considers normal is different to uh, what another doctor considers, like just, just so that we're all clear on that. Like if you go to a naturopath, mm -hmm. 
they're going to look at your thyroid labs and have potentially a different idea of what's normal versus not. Uh, a fertility doctor, medical doctor, is going to have a different idea of what's normal for thyroid versus a regular GP. Mm-hmm. Um, so even that, even the fact that you know that different doctors look at the same labs and see different things is a problem. Um, but ultimately, your labs could be normal. But if you are actually cold and your temperatures are actually cold, um, you're showing menstrual cycle disturbances. So uh, so with thyroid disorders, you may have cycles that are problematic. So you could have uh, delayed ovulation. You might have abnormal cervical mucus patterns, of course, like low temperatures, things like that. Um, But there's different signs that you might see. And so it's, it's helpful. I think it's helpful for women to have this additional information. Um, mm-hmm. The menstrual cycle in, in many ways can be used as a diagnostic tool to alert you to issues that are happening and also help you to continue advocating for yourself. If you know that you have a bunch of symptoms, like you mentioned, like you're, you know, you're running cold, you, you have like the foggy thought thing, mm-hmm. um, gaining weight, like, but your thyroid tests are normal, your chart is abnormal. I mean, that at least gives you this additional piece of information and it can help you. Like in my case, I didn't stop. Like when, when my doctors told me like, no, you just have to go on the pill. It's totally fine to have a 45 day cycle, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew it wasn't normal. So I kept going, like I kept going until I found a practitioner who was willing to help me. And that's, it's hard as women. It's hard because we have it to is. advocate for ourselves. Yeah. But at least if you have this information, then it, at mm-hmm. least you, like, you're not crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People have written books about it. Like, right. Like I've interviewed, yeah. I interviewed Janie Bothorp who wrote Stop the Thyroid Madness. Like right. you're, not, you're not crazy. Love like, that side. People have written books about the fact yeah. that doctors don't manage thyroid issues often, you, always in the, the, the best ways. So uh, you just have to keep going until you find a practitioner who will support right. you. Just to talk about that scenario, it, it seems like if you're trying to get pregnant, you would have had a thyroid workup, but um, a lot of doctors, um, they'll just do the simple TSH test. And then if you fall into those very large parameters, and then they say that you're normal, and then you start charting your temperatures and going, wait, why are they so low? And I am cold and I am having a lot of these signs and symptoms, then you probably just need to go see someone else. Um, I would say someone who practices functional medicine because um, I've worked with a lot of clients who've um, even gone to endocrinologists. And I know there's some brilliant ones out there and there's some that are just dealing with the 15 minute time slot and they're kind of not giving you the attention that you need and you're getting dismissed. Well, the thing is like thyroid, it's the thyroid is really interesting and it's really complicated. So it's like the doctors typically test, like you said, the TSH level, which is, it's, it's kind of like your pituitary when your thyroid hormone is low. Like, so when you're, it's like a feedback loop, right? Mm -hmm. So when your hormone level is low, it's like your pituitary is like, Hey, it's time Mm -hmm. to make some more thyroid, right? Mm -hmm. So if your TSH level is elevated, it means that your pituitary is like banging on the door, like make more thyroid. Um, and then they typically will also test for T4. So the two main thyroid hormones that you're, you know, that are produced in your body are T4 and T3. And so like, you know, I'll try to kind of keep it brief, but, um, it's interesting though, T4, um, thyroxine, it's called T4 because there's four iodine molecules attached to it. T3, like triiodothyridine, um, T3 because there's three iodine molecules attached to it. Um, What's interesting is that your body makes the most T4. So the majority of the thyroid hormone that circulates around is T4. But T3 
is way more active and it's what actually needs to get into the cells in order for you to not feel tired. <laughs> so in order for you to actually, like in order for your body temperature to be normal and in order for you to just feel normal, it's the T3 that has to get into your cells. So the challenge with thyroid is that, um, you know, if you get diagnosed, even if you get diagnosed with a thyroid issue and you're given thyroid medication, you're typically given like synthetic T4, like uh, synthroid or level thyroxine. And so then um, what happens is the majority of your T3 is actually converted uh, from T4 by your peripheral tissues. So like throughout your body, um, in order for you, in order for you to have enough of this thyroid hormone in your cells, your body actually has to convert the T4 to T3. So the problem lies in that not everyone's always a good converter. There's a lot of specific nutrients that are required for that conversion process that a lot of us are deficient in because a lot of us are just deficient in nutrients just in general. Um, and so if you don't have somebody who, who gets that, who's who's evaluating you mm -hmm. and who's doing the right testing and who knows how to support thyroid function and to not just give you ad additional T4, but to support that conversion process to monitor your, your signs, to monitor your metabolism, like all of those types of things, then um, it's possible just for it to kind of be treated. And what I love about charting is that as you know, when you're taking, when you're charting your cycles, when you're checking your temperatures, when you're monitoring your mucus patterns and your menstrual cycle length, if your thyroid isn't treated, it's going to show up on the chart. Like the chart is not going to improve. Um, and so it, it, it makes it complicated in the sense that a lot of physicians aren't necessarily looking at those parameters, but again, it gives you more information so that you can, you can really see if it's working. Like if you have a thyroid issue and your cycles are kind of like off, mm -hmm. um, and that issue is then addressed or any other issues that you may be struggling with, then you would expect to see an improvement in your cycle. And so in many ways, your cycle, it, it's like this feedback tool that actually is, it's like a report card, like it tells you mm. if, you're, if you're going in the right direction, you'll see improvements. So I just wanted to share a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, I like that. Complicated, right? But you mm. need to find somebody who's willing to support you and who's knowledgeable, like you said, from a functional perspective to at least get that it's not just about replacing the T4 or whatever, like it's about supporting your body to actually do what it needs to do so that you're, so that you, you actually feel better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's well, like keep, the most important part. <laughs> um, I mean, and probably like if you li if you're, hopefully you're listening to other episodes of our podcast, but um, we kind of always are, I mean, this comes up at some point in, in, in a conversation with almost everybody because it's that important. And um, so I, I don't, I don't feel bad talking about it once again, because it's really, I don't know, we can't emphasize it enough because I still talk to people who go, and then I explain that scenario and they go, well, my doctor has me on, on Synthroid. I'm like, well, and then it, it's just like, well, I don't know. People have to go through their well, own And education. everybody's different. So for one yeah. woman, um, that might be enough. Like I every, know. everyone is different. So for, for some, but, some people do better in, with this and some people yeah. do better on that. And so it's very like, there's not just one solution for but I think you but I think you have to kind of like how you explained it you kind of have to understand how it works so that you could yeah. make that instead of spending 10 minutes with your doctor and then giving and then you don't really know the process that's why that website stop the thyroid madness I think it's brilliant um I learned so much from it but <laughs> And, 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 and one other benefit of tracking your temperature is if you are working with an acupuncturist, um, most acupuncturists who prescribe herbs really rely on those charts 
um, to prescribe herb formulas. I mean, that's, those are Because needed. don't they prescribe them based on where you're at in the cycle? So they want to know if you're mm -hmm. in your follicular phase, like yeah. before ovulation, or they want to know, yeah. Yeah. Um, if your temperatures are low, do you support the kidneys? And yeah. yeah, there's like, there's a bunch of things. So um, absolutely. So those are really necessary. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I was telling Lisa before, I usually like prep people. I just kind of threw her into the fire because she <laughs> has her own podcast and I knew that and she knows her topic so well. And um, you did wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Um, you asked great questions. So. Oh, good. Thank you. All right. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Hour. For being one of our loyal listeners, we would like to give you free access to a special report called Restore Your Fertility Naturally. Inside, you'll learn about an eight-step, all-natural process that's helped hundreds of couples conceive. This is one of our most popular reports, and you can get free access by going to fertilityhour.com forward slash report. Again, that's fertilityhour.com forward slash report. Go there now, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Fertility Hour.